Vaccines are without doubt one of the greatest public health success stories in history, leading to a massive reduction in infectious diseases that once were considered a fact of life, leading to suffering and death all over the world. Today, many of us have never known someone with polio or measles, diseases that just a generation or two ago were still very common. Vaccines are different than a lot of health interventions, in particular, in that they're a preventive measure and are therefore given to people who aren't currently sick. And they're mandated as an intervention in order to start school in many places in the United States. But there are good reasons why vaccines are mandated and why it's important for as many people as possible to get vaccinated. And one of the biggest reasons is something that we call herd immunity, a concept that is really important to vaccines as a public health good that we think not enough of people know about. So herd immunity is a phenomenon that when people get vaccinated, it not only protects them individually, it also protects those around them. This is because the vaccinated person is no longer able to spread the disease to anyone around them who didn't get vaccinated. And there'll always be people for one reason or another who can't get vaccinated, like really the children, for example. I'm your host, Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we're going to be talking about the concept of herd immunity or what we also call community immunity. What is it? What is it accomplished? How do we know it works? And what happens if we lose it? To do so, I am joined by Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Jennifer Hearn from the University of California at Berkeley School of Public Health to talk to us about vaccines and community immunity. Welcome, Justin and Jennifer. Hi, thank you for having us. We'll also hear from some leaders in the field through interviews that both Justin and Jennifer did. So can we start off by having the two of you introduce yourself? Justin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I've been studying infectious diseases for a decade and a half now. Uh, and I really study the disease dynamics, so how diseases move through populations, uh, what makes populations be protected from the diseases and what makes uh, diseases move quickly. Great. And Jen? I'm an associate professor here at UC Berkeley. And as a social epidemiologist, I usually think a lot about how social interactions lead to group phenomena and have enjoyed through this process learning more about how uh, infections lead to group phenomena. Terrific. So maybe to get us started off, Justin, can you just talk to us about what herd immunity is? Give us a little bit of an introduction and why you thought this was an important topic for our audience to know about. So herd immunity is the indirect protection or the extra protection we get from a disease because the people around us are immune from that disease. So the idea of us getting sick less often because other people are immune, even if we still might be susceptible to getting sick. And I thought it was a good topic for uh, Epidemiology Counts podcast because, you know, epidemiology is the study of health and populations and herd immunity is purely a population level phenomena. And so it's in a way, it's a, one of the most epi of epi concepts. And it's also one that has a very direct effect on all of our lives and has given us uh, the ability to do things that may have one time seemed impossible, like eliminate smallpox or rather eradicate smallpox from the face of the planet. Terrific. And so you've spoken to some, some experts in the field on this particular topic. Can you tell us a little bit about the first uh, interview that we're going to hear? 
Yeah, so we really wanted to talk to someone who is on the front lines of uh, implementing vaccination programs and using herd immunity to control disease. So we got in touch with Walt Arnstein. Uh, Walt is a professor of infectious disease at Emory University, and he spent years working on implementing vaccina vaccination programs for the US Public Health Service. He was director of the United States Immunization Program from 1998 to 2004 and served as Assistant Surgeon General to the United States Public Health Service. He started his career around the same time smallpox was eradicated, and we asked him if that had any impact on his decision to focus his career around vaccines. Smallpox was declared eliminated just two years before you began working at the CDC Immunization Program in 1982. Um, did that affect your decision to work on vaccines at all? Yes, actually, I had initially come to CDC as what is known as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, or EIS Officer, in 1974. And I actually worked in India on smallpox eradication and saw this terrible disease with a 30% case fatality rate get eradicated in front of my eyes with a vaccine, and that changed my whole career, and I became a vaccinologist. As we mentioned at the beginning, we're interested in uh, learning more about herd immunity today. Um, and one good place to start is uh, just a basic definition. Um, when you had to explain herd immunity to politicians or others while you were in the public health service, how would you describe this phenomenon? Herd immunity, in essence, is indirect protection. When we give a vaccine, we induce active immunity in the person who receives that vaccine. However, not all people can be vaccinated and they're indirectly protected because they're not exposed. And what herd immunity is, is getting such a high level of immunity in the community that the circulation of the pathogen, the bacteria, the virus, stops and you indirectly protect people because they're not exposed. Uh, and that's very important because, again, uh, there are some children who are too young for vaccination, but still susceptible. They're protected if they're not exposed. There are people with legitimate medical contraindications to vaccination. They're protected if they're not exposed. And when you have high immunity levels, you can protect them. In essence, what these viruses and bacteria need is a continuous chain of human-to-human -human transmission. And if someone who's infectious only comes in contact with immune individuals, that chain is broken. So you don't have to have 100% immunity for most diseases in a population to stop circulation of that pathogen, that bacteria, that virus. So, so if we pretended for a second there, there was no such thing as herd immunity, we didn't have that indirect protection out there working for us, uh, do you think we would have been able to eliminate smallpox? No, I don't think so. I think to me, if there's no herd immunity, then you need 100% immunity. And that's a goal that is too hard to reach. Uh, as an example, for, uh, we can take tetanus. Tetanus is a bacterium which is in the soil, and so it is not transmitted to humans. Human, if we want to eradicate tetanus, we've got to get everybody in the world vaccinated. Whereas with smallpox, we didn't have to do that because we were able to break all the chains of human-to-human -human transmission 
we got immunity high enough to break those chains. Okay, so yeah, I think I think you asked my answered my next question, which was, you know, what what's the specific way in which the success of the smallpox eradication program really depended on the presence of herd immunity? Well, what was done with smallpox is something called surveillance and containment or ring vaccination. What we used to do is we would find cases and then we would isolate those cases so nobody who was potentially susceptible could come in and get infected. Then we would identify people who were already exposed by that person or who likely could have been exposed or would be exposed if transmission occurred. And these were in rings around them and we went and vaccinated all of them. So in essence, what we did with this ring vaccination approach with surveillance and containment is broke the chains of transmission without having to get the entire population immunized. We were able to get it with people at highest risk and we could break the chains. So I know that measles control was a big focus throughout your career. Is that right? Yes, measles has been what I've spent uh, much of my career on. And it seems like you realized at some point that the smallpox strategy was not going to work for measles. Could you talk about why there were what those differences were uh, in what strategy? I'd be happy to. What happened with smallpox is generally people didn't become contagious until they were very sick and with the beginning of the rash. And so they weren't out walking around in the general public. For example, if you look at importations of smallpox into Europe in the 1950s, most of the transmission took place either in family settings or in medical settings where sick people were brought in with smallpox and can then transmit to others. In contrast with measles, it can become contagious before the individual is really sick. And they have what's called a prodromal set of symptoms, which are like cold symptoms, cough, runny nose, maybe light sensitive red eyes, conjunctivitis, and they can be very infectious then. And because they're so infectious and walking around, you can't do a ring vaccination approach. You have to do more of a large population approach to get to the immunity levels needed to interrupt transmission. So, so thinking back to like the theme of this episode is herd immunity is, is a way to say this, that in um, smallpox, you were able to get some herd immunity by building a wall around cases, like building a wall of immunity around cases with this ring vaccination and then measles, you have to take a whole population approach? That, that is correct. With measles, because it was much more difficult to predict spread, you needed to take a larger population vaccination approach. And one of the key aspects of herd immunity is a concept called r naught, or the basic reproduction number. And what that means is that the average number of transmissions that would take place if the population was 100% susceptible. Measles is, in a sense, at the top of the list. 
the average case of measles in most studies is capable of transmitting for, to 12 to 18 people. And so the herd immunity threshold is uh, about 92 to 94%. And if that's the case, the average case of measles coming into that population would transmit to less than one person and transmission would die out. To, to give you an example of the easier numbers of what R0 means, let's take a disease, for example, with an R0 of four. That means if I was an infectious person coming into that population that was 100% susceptible, I would, on average, transmit to four people. If three of them were immune, on average, I would transmit to one person and you would have constant level of transmission. If we go above a 75% immunity threshold, I would transmit to less than one person and transmission would die out. And so these herd immunity thresholds are very important uh, to give us guidelines. And for measles, because it is so high, we need to get very high immunity levels. In the United States, that's one of the reasons we have these school mandates, to protect not only the individual getting vaccinated, but to protect the community. In fact, I prefer the term community protection to herd immunity because that's what we're really talking about, is we're not inducing immunity in everybody, we're protecting everybody either through direct vaccination or through not being exposed to the infectious pathogen, the infectious virus or the infectious bacteria, for example. I, I appreciate that. And I've always liked the, um, that aspect of, you know, doing something not only for your own health, but for the health of your whole community. And I always feel that way when I vaccinate my daughter or uh, get vaccination boosters myself. I wonder, since you talk about such a high level of vaccination being required for measles protection um, at the community level, do you think it's possible that we could eradicate measles? I think it's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. In the United States, we interrupted indigenous transmission of measles in 2000. And despite having multiple importations and outbreaks, this last year was a second highest year of measles since 2000, we have yet to have sustained endemic transmission for more than a year. So that we have been able to do it, it's not easy. And there are a number of other countries who've been able to do it. So it's theoretically feasible. Uh, and uh, what was important with measles in the United States is because it's so contagious, it was a leading edge and it helped us build our overall immunization program, which was very important. Um, out of the, our efforts to control measles, we have the school mandates, which are very important because again, when a child gets vaccinated, they're not only protecting themselves, they're protecting the community. And we develop a financing mechanism for access to vaccine to poor children, because it's in our interest, whether we're rich or poor, that everybody gets vaccinated and we help remove barriers. So measles played a big role in uh, doing that. 
So, Walt, this, this has been really great. I want to end with, like, one last question while we're talking about eradication. I think, you know, so smallpox is the only human disease we've been able to eradicate, but it seems like we're getting uh, close to polio. Do you have any thoughts on the end game for polio and uh, maintaining high levels of immunity there? Yeah, I think that's very important. We're almost there with polio. We only have two countries that in two, since 2017 have had polio, Pakistan and Afghanistan. We have not had circulating wild virus polio in any other country in the world. Now, obviously, if we don't get rid of it in Pakistan and Afghanistan, there's the potential to reinfect other countries around the world. So the big issue is how do we reach particularly children in areas of conflict and insecurity. That's the big challenge. The other challenge with polio is to make sure once eradicated, it doesn't return. And that means making sure laboratories around the world, we get rid of polio or we handle it very, very carefully. Uh, Everybody talks about the last natural case of smallpox being in Somalia in 1977, the actual last cases of smallpox were in the United Kingdom in 1978 as a result of a break in laboratory containment. Oh, I didn't know that. We need to do that as well to assure sustained efforts. But to me, the big concern is working with Pakistan and Afghanistan. They are committed to get to those children in difficult to reach areas and get them vaccinated. And then we can interrupt transmission there as well. Well, this has been really great, Walt. And thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. So that was a really fascinating interview. And I, I, I learned a bunch of things that I actually didn't know. Um, I'm curious, uh, Jen, if you could sort of talk to us, Walt talked about this idea of of indirect protection that, that vaccines provide us. Can you, can you say a little bit more about why this is indirect protection? Well, I think he was talking about um, the issue that, you know, you have people who may themselves not be vaccinated, but because those around them receive a vaccine, uh, this can serve as a protection because there's a lack of ability to transmit um, the infection through people who, who are protected, um, leading to protection for others. Terrific. And, and Justin, Walt, Walt mentioned that because of herd immunity, that we don't necessarily need to have everyone in a population get vaccinated in order to end transmission. Um, so what, is, what proportion of the population do we actually need to vaccinate in order to prevent an outbreak? Yeah, so Walt mentioned this concept called r not, And I think you can think of that really simply as in a normal day, if everybody could be infected, it's the number of people you'd meet and infect. So imagine... Uh, or a normal course of infection, but let's say you're only infectious for a day for the sake of argument. So during that day, if I'm going to meet five people and infect them, uh, if they're susceptible, if, if they can be infected over the course of the day, then the, that day I'm infectious, that's the uh, basic reproductive number. That's how many people I can infect. So it's quite the idea of getting to this point to stop infection is quite simply the idea of getting that number below one so that I'm expected to infect less than one person in that day that I'm infectious. So if, uh, you know, so if 50% of the population is immune, half of those people I meet during the day are not going to be actually infected. 
So that would make uh, our not, or sorry, the reproductive number, the number of people infected, two and a half people is the number of people I expect to infect. Now, if we now get that down to 80%, so four out of those five people I met, I meet, are not going to be susceptible to the disease, that means I'm only likely to infect one person during the day. Only one of those infectious contacts was going to happen. And if we get it down just even a little bit below that, then I'm expected to infect less than one person per day. And the disease dies out. So it's that number. It's that one it's, it's that um, number that gets us to the point where that times the number of people we're supposed to infect, expected to infect today, the basic reproductive number, is below one. That's the number we need to get to to eliminate the disease. Great. So I, I know that you also spoke to um, Dr. Elizabeth Halloran uh, about some of these ideas. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, um, you know, the idea of community immunity seems logical, um, but it's also something that could be really hard to measure. Um, and, you know, we use different types of studies to try to measure things at the population level. Sometimes we use observational studies where we just observe um, how people have been exposed to something like vaccination practice and try to glean from that something about um, maybe direct and indirect effects of that vaccination. And then we also uh, conduct clinical trials, meaning studies in which we assign treatment, usually using randomization. Um, and these are studies in which uh, we have a nice uh, feature of comparability between those groups because people have been randomized. Um, and um, we talked to Betts Halloran, who's a professor at University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Um, because she is really uh, the world-renowned expert on studies to look at these effects of vaccines. Um, and we started off by asking her what she thought about Walt's use of the term community immunity. We recently talked to Walt Ornstein and he said he preferred the term community immunity to the term herd immunity. We hadn't heard that idea before, but we liked the idea. Have you heard that before? Yes, I have heard that before. It's a chapter in a book on vaccines where Walt is a co-author. He's not a <laughs> co-author on that chapter, but I happened to look through that chapter yesterday again. So, so where you use the term commu uh, community immunity instead of herd immunity? Well, since you told me this was about herd immunity, I wasn't planning to use that. Um, they, the herd immunity, he may have told you, the herd immunity idea comes from um, Major Greenwood back in the 20s and 30s. And I happened to read through his chapter on that where they were doing experimental epidemiology on herds of mice and looking at immunity in herds of mice. So the idea of herd immunity comes from that person who was very instrumental in infectious diseases. And I think they wanted to change it to community immunity because it might refer more to people. But I don't think it's caught on. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, like, I liked the term. I, I don't know how I'd never heard it before. Um, so, because people don't use it. Because people don't use it. <laughs> well, we can start to change that today, right? Right. Yeah. No, right. It's Maybe we should entitle the episode Community Immunity. I think yeah. we should. So uh, whether we refer to it as community immunity or herd immunity, you know, Walt gave us a good uh, intuitive description of how it works. Uh, but, you know, we, when we're trying to figure out if... Um, other drugs or vaccines work. We usually don't just use our intuition. We use clinical trials or studies. So uh, do people run clinical trials to measure uh, community immunity? And is it something that's even possible? 
Yes, it is possible. There are a couple different ways to go about it. One of them is an observational study. That is, suppose you introduce a vaccine into a population. And so you didn't vaccinate before, and now you do vaccinate. So you can look at what the um, incidence of the disease was before you started vaccinating and what the incidence of the disease was after you started vaccinating. So that's a, what we'd call an observational study. Um, and you can compare if you have the if you know who didn't get vaccinated after you introduced the vaccine, you can look at the incidence in the people who didn't get vaccinated um, when you introduced the vaccine and see if that's different than before you did. Now, there was problems with this because there could be some time trends that say the incidence of the disease was going down beforehand anyway. And so you would have to account for that kind of trend, uh, the temporal trends as we call them, the time trends. Now, there are people who do, we do do um, designed studies. Um, and a common way of doing that, a common is, is still relatively uncommon, but there are people who do this, and I've been involved with this too, say that you want to look, you want to do a design study. So you take clusters of people, say a village, villages or other kind of geographical units, um, and you take those clusters and you can randomize them to get the vaccine of interest, or they could also be randomized to get another vaccine. For example, we did a study in Senegal um, where we were interested in the effects of an influenza vaccine. And so we randomized some villages to have the six-month-old to 10-year-olds vaccinated with influenza vaccine. And in the other villages, they got as a blinding effort, they got a polio vaccine. So that the people in the clusters actually didn't know if they were getting the influenza vaccine or the polio vaccine. Um, and so in a study like that, of course, not everybody is going to show up to get vaccinated. You want them to show up, the six month olds, the 10 year olds, but they don't. And so we can measure these kind of effects I was talking about, the indirect effects we would measure in a study like that by comparing the people who didn't show up to get the flu vaccine with the people who didn't show up to get the polio vaccine. Because people who didn't show up to get the influenza vaccine, even though they were eligible, they would be possibly protected from influenza by the people who did show up to get the influenza vaccine. Of course, in the populations where they got the polio vaccine, that would presumably not have any effect on influenza so that the comparison then um, between the people who didn't show up because it's a randomized study would be legitimate. And that's one way of comparing those outcomes, the influenza outcomes, and to measure the indirect effects of the vaccine. So we're curious whether there are any studies that have told us a lot about indirect effects of vaccines or perhaps changed how we think about herd immunity with respect to a given vaccine. So a really important example in the field was the introduction of the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine in the early 1990s. And at that time, there were people like me who believed in indirect effects and was interested in trying to estimate them. But it wasn't so widely accepted. And when they introduced the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine for infants, it just completely wiped out Haemophilus influenza B in everybody. And it was a, a real eye-opener. It wasn't exactly a study that was designed, but the people who were not eligible to get the Haemophilus influenza B, that is the very young children and the older children, also 
stopped getting Haemophilus influenza B. And so it, it caused a real stir in the medical community to see that. And it really changed people's minds about thinking about indirect effects. That's so, an example. So just for our listeners who might not be uh, medical, you know, medical folks, what does uh, Haemophilus influenza B, like what kind of disease does that cause? Haemophilus influenza B causes an influenza-like illness. Um, okay, so it's like a bacteria that causes it's, the it's flu, a, almost? It, it, it's a bacteria that, excuse me, yes. So um, it's a bacteria that causes something that's a flu-like illness. Another example was then with the pneumococcal vaccine, um, where again, it wasn't a study, but the, the effects were radical. So they introduced the pneumococcal vaccine, which causes pneumonia and other um, diseases. And there are 93 different strains of pneumococcal bacteria. And only originally there were seven in the vaccine, and then there's more now, like 13. And so what happened was when they introduced it, also all the strains that were in the vaccine just vanished. The diseases were no longer caused by because it and it made people think it's it's very much like Haemophilus influenza B. It's something we don't think about usually, but we all carry these bacteria in our noses and we transmit by breathing on other people. Most of the time we don't get sick from Haemophilus influenza B. Most of the time we don't get sick from pneumococcal. We just carry them in our but if the vaccines were able to prevent people from carrying them in their noses, and so they couldn't transmit them anymore. And so that was another example where it just had a radical effect on the ones that were in the, the pneumococcal vaccine that had the pneumococcal uh, uh, strains in the vaccine were pretty much wiped out. Um, oh, so that's impressive. Uh, so the studies you talked about, right, you, you're saying those were just observational studies, right? Yes. Um, okay, so so how about trials like the the uh, types of clinical trials you talked about before? We could actually uh, structure a trial around this. Are there good examples of that? Well, yes, they're they're trying to. There are a couple groups that are trying to demonstrate indirect effects of cholera vaccines and typhoid vaccines. These are vaccines that don't have real high efficacy of protecting individuals. But if you can demonstrate that a vaccine has indirect effects, then it becomes much more cost effective. And so for countries where they don't have large budgets, or there are also international organizations that will support vaccination programs, if you can demonstrate that the vaccine not only protects the people that get vaccinated, but also protects people who don't get vaccinated, mm -hmm. then it becomes much more cost effective and much more interesting for the funders to pay for the vaccine. Cool. Well, I think we've asked, you know, all the questions. It's been a really great conversation. We really like, thank you for uh, talk, taking some time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. So that was a really interesting interview. So I, I, I noticed that in the conversation that you had with Dr. Helen, she mentioned the difference between incidence and prevalence. Jen, can you just sort of explain to us what the difference is between those two? Yes, she talked about uh, prevalence, uh, which is just at a given moment in time, what proportion of the population um, has a certain thing. And in this case, the, the prevalence of vaccination is, is pretty important for uh, thinking about this phenomenon of uh, community immunity. Um, and then she also talked about incidence, which we think of as a new occurrence of disease in the population over time. 
Um, and so uh, she discussed this dynamic between the prevalence of uh, vaccination having a big influence on the incidence, the new occurrence of disease in the population. Terrific. And, and Justin, I, I, when I listened to that interview, it seemed to me like as important as herd immunity is, it's really hard to measure just how big the indirect effect, the herd immunity effect is. Can you tell us why that is? So it's, it has a lot to do, in my opinion, with the fact that you don't get a lot of examples to compare. And uh, we know that how big herd immunity is, how big that effect is, those indirect effects are, uh, will have to do with how much of the population we actually manage to vaccinate and create immunity in, and, and how many people were immune before we ever even started our vaccination program. And so you get to see sort of one instance of that, like, uh, you know, I think the, the only thing I'm going to remember from this episode 20 years from now is that they're herds of mice. Um, but we, was new to me. <laughs> but we uh, don't really, you know, if we had herds of mice, we could maybe study the effect of, uh, you know, community immunity when there were, you know, 50% of the mice vaccinated, 75% of mice vaccinated, 85% of the mice vaccinated, and really get down to like exactly how big those effects are in different populations. But when we have, uh, when we do a, a trial, we only get to see, you know, what we saw in that trial. We only get one chance to see what's going on. And I think that makes it really hard to understand exactly how big the effect is. And it's also usually not something we're designing the trial around. So it's sort of an extra piece of information. Great, and, and so you talked a little bit about um, what proportion of the population are actually getting vaccinated. We'd like to know about that. We know that, 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 that vaccination rates vary in different populations. Um, and I, you spoke to uh, Dr. Saad Omer about this particular topic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we talked to Saad because he studies uh, what happens when people stop vaccinating is one of his big uh, areas of research. And so we wanted to talk to him about how that actually played out in terms of what diseases actually happen. So uh, Saad Omer is the William H. Fagy Chair of Global Health at Emory uh, University. And uh, we started by asking him about some notable outbreaks. This episode's about herd immunity, and after talking to uh, Walt Ornstein and uh, Beth Talleran, we're thinking of calling the episode uh, community immunity, because Walt liked that term a lot better, yeah. and uh, Betts likes it too. Do you, do you think that's a better term for the phenomena? I think it's a reasonable term. One of the, there's always a struggle between using a term that epidemiologists and scientists like versus something uh, that is uh, common vocabulary. So what I have started doing is, for example, if I'm writing an op-ed, I use the term, the more common term, which is herd immunity, because people understand this, um, and then put, it, put community protection or community immunity in parentheses. So we know you've spent a good amount of time studying outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases in the United States. Um, we were hoping you could tell us a bit about some of the notable outbreaks that you've worked on. So one of the more notable ones are, was this outbreak in Minnesota that was centered around the, the Somali population. And one of the reasons why I remember it, or one of the reasons why it stands out, that there was a somewhat concerted effort by those who do not particularly well, like vaccines to work with that community 
it's a it's a, a heavily immigrant community. Obviously, there are a bunch of kids and um, young adults who are born in this country, but but they have this uh, immigrant heritage, and so there were several visits by. Um, folks who don't particularly like vaccines to that community and they worked with them and there was this whole autism MMR myth pushed to that community. And then, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if vaccination rates go down, we have outbreaks. And so it has that implication. But the other reason why it stands out that public health authorities and local uh, hospitals, et cetera, and entities who care about uh, infectious diseases work with the community. And so the, the response wasn't to ostracize the community. The response wasn't to say that uh, this entity is, to, is of concern, this group is of concern for, for broader uh, disease outbreaks. They worked with the community and worked on bringing up the immunization rate. So that's one recent one. Uh, once. Uh, then uh, the, the so-called Disneyland outbreaks, God knows how many presentations I've seen with uh, uh, Mickey Mouse with measles um, marks or measles spots on, on the on Mickey's face. I'm pretty hope, sure I've seen that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope, you know, in the next outro, uh, outbreak, we are more creative and have, have a broader range uh, of uh, sort of mildly funny jokes. Um, so, so, so that outbreak, obviously, it's called the Disneyland outbreak. It was uh, more broadly spread. Uh, but it came to attention when cases from Disneyland uh, were brought to public health authorities' attention. And it is important, uh, the outbreak is important because of the imagery of people going to the quintessential destination for American families and getting measles was so relatable. It wasn't the biggest outbreak in re recent memory, for example, uh, but it was so relatable perhaps that it led to a lot of legislative action and a lot of public discussion. So those are a couple of really uh, notable and interesting case studies. In general, um, do we have evidence that we see outbreaks more where vaccination rates are lower? Yes, and not only that, we, it's, not a, it's a process that works uh, not, uh, not just uh, in the context of overall immunization rates, but also clustering is extremely important. So those who uh, do not vaccinate for whatever reason, especially intentional non-vaccination, tend to cluster both geographically and socially. So for example, now 11 years ago, we, we published this study in the American Journal of Epidemiology based on data from Michigan, where we showed that uh, clusters of vaccine refusers, as measured by non-medical exemptions or exemptions to immunization requirement in Michigan, ge geographically overlapped with uh, clusters of whooping cough or pertussis. You know, whenever you have this critical mass of susceptible individuals that serves as, uh, you know, as Tinder, not, not that kind of Tinder, but that kind <laughs> of you know, things that start fire, where you can have uh, these outbreaks uh, that get started. And what about in the other direction? Do we have examples of outbreaks occurring in highly vaccinated populations or is that yeah. unheard of? No, it's not unheard of. Again, there's always a range. What we, you know, like anything in epidemiology, you look at overall uh, sort of associations, things will go in either direction. The net uh, uh, effect and the, you know, is, is, is what is in the direction of 
uh, um, highly um, unvaccinated populations on average being more susceptible. But even beyond that, uh, there are certain uh, vaccines uh, that we came to know had what we call waning immunity. So uh, a lot of mumps outbreaks have happened in vaccinated populations. They have happened in unvaccinated populations as well. I had, a, I had another, a sort of related question. It's almost uh, taking uh, what Jen asked and standing on its head a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of these populations we think about that have been refusing vaccine for a long time, we don't generally thinking about as having a lot of measles and stuff. So for instance, the Amish people, I don't think of, think of the Amish as having a big uh, measles burden. Is, is that an accurate picture of what's going on or? Actually, it's not unheard of, they happen. And so even in the relatively isolated communities that, that stick to themselves, there is possibility of importation. And that has happened. These outbreaks have happened. But, but the sweet spot, or you know, maybe the sweet spot is not the right term. Um, the sour spot. The sour or the bitter or the itchy spot, you know, if you're being more <laughs> accurate in terms of, of some of the symptoms, um, is that, um, uh, that you know, a community that has a cluster and then has possibility of importation. So it's those places, like, so the Amish, you're saying, since they don't travel a lot, has to wait for a tourist to show up or somebody like that for exactly. measles before they have a yeah. problem, so they're generally protected. Whereas if you live in Southern California, it's one of the most traveled to places in the world. Yeah, exactly. So Dr. Omer mentioned uh, the Disneyland outbreak, one that I think that many of our listeners are probably familiar with. It got a lot of press and, and a lot of people heard about it. Um, and he mentioned as, as part of talking about that outbreak that it isn't just as simple as that we just need to get everyone in the country vaccinated above a certain threshold. Um, and he said that was, that was because unvaccinated people tend to cluster together so that even if you know, we might have 80% of the population vaccinated, it wouldn't be evenly distributed. Can you talk a bit more about how that might work and, and why that would be a, a potential cause for concern? Yeah, so, I mean, if we go back to my, the example I gave earlier when I was talking about how we figured out the amount of population that needs to be vaccinated, right? It's, it's the amount of people I meet in the day who aren't protected that really matters uh, if I'm sick, right? It's, that's what really matters. And if I'm meeting particular types of people who happen to be less likely to be vaccinated for whatever reason, uh, then I'm more likely to, uh, then I can still spread to more than one person and spark an outbreak even if, all the people I'm not meeting aren't vaccinated. So, you know, another way to think of it is just for me, who I'm infecting, it only matters the people I meet. And so if all the unvaccinated people are getting together, meeting together, it doesn't matter that they're surrounded by unvaccinated people beyond the fact that that might keep the disease being, from being introduced to that population. And so it seems like you could have, you know, 99% of the population who was vaccinated, but if that 1% of the population who's unvaccinated are all living together in close community, if, if you know, an infectious disease gets introduced there, that could potentially lead to an outbreak. Is, is that the way to think yeah, about it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And they don't have to necessarily be living physically together. They can be close together in sort of social space, right? They can go to the same schools, they can go to the same restaurants and stuff like that. And, and I think it's worth mentioning too, that like the people, uh, the unvaccinated people who might be together densely, that's not necessarily always a voluntary thing. 
So if we are talking about the a hospital for a clinic for people with compromised immune systems or something like that, uh, unvaccinated people will cluster there because they have to, and that's where they go. And that's why those are contexts where you know, healthcare workers and people who can be vaccinated are usually really sensitive to making sure they get their vaccines. And I and presumably this is why they, you often hear the advice that we, if we are, you know, developed some kind of infectious disease we're concerned about, we shouldn't necessarily rush to our doctor because those people who are also sitting in the waiting room of a doctor are potentially people that I'm now going to infect who may be there because they're also sick and have, you know, compromised immune systems. Yeah, cer certainly when we go out, whether it's to go uh, to see a medical professional or, you know, to do our shopping, you know, we, we put other people at risk. And, you know, I think, you know, we might need to be getting a little better about staying home when we're sick sometimes. <laughs> I think that's hard to do, but yeah. So you, hard so for you, me to do. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that, um, you know, that that's some of these uh, reasons why people are uh, unvaccinated but are sharing the same spaces because, you know, some of these um, behaviors tend to cluster together. And, and that got me thinking about the idea that these this, this herd immunity idea doesn't necessarily only correspond to infectious diseases, but it's also something that we can think of in relation to other conditions. Jen, can you tell us a little bit more about how that might work? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's really interesting as a social epidemiologist to think about how some of these concepts might extend to uh, fields where, um, you know, there, there aren't uh, vaccines available, but we certainly have contagious processes. Um, for example, when we think about, um, you know, the period of adolescence, which is one I think about a good amount with a young adolescent at home, um, we know that uh, kids certainly model behaviors off of what's happening around them. Um, and, you know, we could imagine a, a given, you know, social circle of kids where, um, you know, a, a set of behaviors are sort of, you know, accepted or normative. And, um, you know, then with the introduction of, a, you know, a new, a new child with new, uh, you know, behaviors, this could uh, potentially introduce a whole set of new things going on, or perhaps there's a situation where, you know, new behaviors come in and the existing kids say, nope, you know, that's not accepted here. It would be really interesting from my perspective to get some better understanding of, um, you know, is there, is there a way to foster some sort of herd immunity among kids or in other populations against things that we're, you know, we're hoping they won't uh, pick up his behaviors. Um, I'm thinking of a story I was told recently about a, a friend whose daughter's uh, classmate had uh, become addicted to nicotine through vaping, and that's certainly something we worry about a lot these days. Um, but, you know, would it be possible to somehow create a, a, a social vaccine against uh, behaviors that we're hoping to prevent? And so it seems like what, what you're, what you're, saying is that we would essentially be creating a, a ring around people uh, around their social networks in which they just wouldn't be exposed to a particular um, negative behavior or a negative, you know, substance abuse or, or vaping or whatever it is, because they just never really came into contact with it. Is that, is that the idea? Well, certainly I think, you know, that's sort of what, what happens, right, uh, when groups are sort of isolated, you know, certain behaviors just don't get introduced. But then at the same time, we'd also like to be able to foster a situation where an, if a new behavior does come in, 
that there might be some form of protection against that being picked up and, and thinking more about that could be really interesting, I think. Yeah, so yeah I, I, that new behavior would kind of die out because exactly. there'd be no one else susceptible. Just exactly. Yeah, I, I think like this gets to, there's, there's two aspects of this community immunity phenomena, right? One is the taking away people for you to transmit to, but the second, which maybe is ultimately the more powerful, is taking away people to transmit to you or infect you, or uh, in the case of uh, you know nicotine and vaping, vaping model a behavior that you don't want to see. I, I think this is one of the ideas that going back to infectious disease for a moment, like this is one of the ideas about uh, mass drug administration campaigns that people are thinking about a lot in uh, for controlling certain diseases and as a general health measure in uh, certain places in the world where there's heavily infectious disease burden. It's not so much that, you know, all the people you're treating who have active infection from that, that, that people think is giving you your benefit. It's that all of the people who are sort of silently carrying a bacteria or a parasite or something, who get the disease washed out of them by the treatment and are no longer out there to transmit to you uh, where the impact really comes. And that's also a form of this same uh, community immunity phenomenon, but it's not you know, driven by the immunity, it's driven by the transmitters. So it sounds like this has the, the potential to be applied to many different situations that we as public health professionals or even just the, the general community can kind of think about as, as ways to try and improve health through this herd immunity concept. I mean, I would think there might be an argument, argument to make that like when we're thinking about population level interventions and epi level interventions, it's really always uh, kind of, this is really always what we're going for, right? Is we're going for stopping the, stopping the behaviors or stopping the actual infections in the case of infectious diseases uh, from running through the population uh, from a everybody's interactions working together to make that happen perspective rather than necessarily so much what any individual does themselves. Terrific. Um, well, so before we, before we wrap up, I guess I, I'd, I'd like to ask you both if you could kind of just you know, tell me what you think are the, the key take-home messages that you want people to have about community immunity. Justin, what's your, what's your takeaway? Oh, besides that they're herds of mice. Besides herds of mice, which we um, all think is fantastic. I, I think the big take-home message that I'd say is that we um, achieve protection through collective action. And this is especially true in infectious diseases, that by um, acting together and, uh, you know, protecting ourselves through vaccine, we're also achieving collective protection. Um, and this herd immunity force is this great extra benefit we get by that, by working together rather than only working individually. Great. Jen, how about you? Any, any last take-home messages? Well, I think for me, um, I always when I think about vaccine preventable diseases, I always want to go back to the severity of these diseases um, and the fact that most of the us have never seen them. Um, but it's not that far back, I think, of teachers I had in school. And in fact, I have an uncle who died of a vaccine preventable disease at a young age. Um, we're not that far away from that time. And we need to remember how serious these diseases are um, and what a an amazing uh, gift it is to be able to prevent them. 
Um, and I, I completely agree with Justin in terms of um, this community action. And I really enjoyed learning more myself about how um, there are sort of two different key dynamics playing out. We have the dynamics of um, how people are interacting that relate to um, how this phenomenon is going to play out, this community immunity. And then also these dynamics around features of disease, how infectious it is, um, and this R not number. Um, so I've really appreciated learning more about these phenomena and I, I expect to keep thinking about how they might be applied to more behavioral issues. Great, and for me, I think the, the, the take home message that I really focus on is the fact, the idea that there will always be people in populations who for whatever reason aren't able to, to get the vaccine. And because of that, and, and you know, that in particular is often vulnerable populations like children and people who are uh, immunocompromised, you know, those are, if we're gonna, if we're gonna take advantage of uh, the herd immunity to protect those individuals, then immunization rates need to be, need to be quite high. So let's, let's leave things there. Uh, I want to thank both Justin and Jen for leading this conversation and a particularly big thanks to all of the guests that you've had on the program. Before we go, I just want to remind people that if you're an epidemiologist, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you discounted fee at the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Minneapolis. Uh, it also gives you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we will be back with another episode soon.